I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, for the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant Word, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5. Let us sing of His Word. O most gracious, everlasting God, whose gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe, send forth your Holy Spirit with the preaching of your word, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Have mercy upon us, miserable sinners, and by the power of the Spirit, open our minds to the Scriptures and enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that with true faith we may behold the riches of your grace toward us in your Son, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, that we may be more nearly drawn to Him, rejoicing in Him, trusting Him alone, to the praise of your glorious grace now and forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, is written. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish and wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And now unto Him who loves us, who has washed us from our sins by His blood, to Jesus Christ, be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul was not a know-nothing preacher. 
He had studied under Gamaliel, one of Judaism's most highly esteemed teachers. As a Pharisee trained in the Scriptures, Paul had reasoned with his fellow Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, promised by the prophets. As a Jew who had been educated in Hellenistic culture, that is, Greek culture, Paul to debate with the Greek philosophers in Athens. The Apostle Paul was not a know-nothing preacher, but he was a preacher who decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as He wrote to the church in Corinth. We read, when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that phrase, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, also implies and entails the great reaction from the dead, His ascension into heaven, and His return in glory. But Paul wasn't ignoring or discounting those great realities, as Lowell commented this morning, said that he had faithfully declared the whole counsel of God. But again, as Lowell pointed out, Everything included in the whole counsel of God either leads up to or flows out of the cross of Jesus Christ. And particularly, in the context of first century Corinth, Paul focused on Christ crucified because it was on the cross of Christ that God displayed both His power and His wisdom Those were important commodities in ancient Corinth, power and wisdom. God displayed both His power and His wisdom. He confounded the wisdom of this world and completely put to shame the power of this world. On the cross and the power of God for salvation to all who believe were demonstrated in a way such that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is, to show that salvation comes only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because it was there on the cross that the justice of God against sin and the mercy of God upon sinners came together in perfect harmony for the salvation of everyone who believes. The Greek phrase translated tonighted literally to see nothing else, that is to set eyes on nothing else or to focus attention on nothing else. And so Paul was saying to the Corinthians, when I came among you, I decided to focus my preaching. Christ was crucified for the salvation of sinners. But as Paul tells us in this passage, the cross was a stumbling block. The Greek word is scandalon, an offense, an offense to the unbelieving Jews of the first century because the idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. The Christ, so they believed, was to be a king of earthly power. And so Paul wrote, Jews demand signs, signs of 
power, just as they did during Jesus' earthly ministry. And then on the other hand, in Corinth, to the Greeks, that is the Gentiles, to the Greek philosophers, the, the idea that the infinite, eternal, divine spirit would become imprint seemed like nonsense. Why would the divine spirit do something so foolish as that? Secondly, Greek philosophers were attracted more to the lofty heights of metaphysical speculation than to this foul notion that a man could be crucified as an atoning sacrifice for sins and thus bring peace with God to others. What wisdom is there in that strange idea? How could anyone accept as Savior a, a man who did not have sufficient wisdom to save himself from the shameful death of Roman crucifixion? And so Paul wrote, Greeks seek wisdom. In this context, Jews demand signs of earthly power, Greeks seek wisdom. We can see in the century Corinth there was not much of a, uh, shall we say, there wasn't much of a natural market for the message of the cross. It was a stumbling block to unbelieving Jews, a folly to the Greeks. Nevertheless, the Apostle Paul did not package and peddle the Word of God and try to sell it. Nor did he tell the Jews in the Corinthian synagogue or the Greek philosophers what they wanted to hear. Tickle their ears in order to make the message of Christ crucified more palatable, more acceptable, more attractive to them. No, the apostles set forth the truth plainly, unvarnished, with no entertainment value, no impressive human performance. In human weakness and with fear and tremble of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that their faith and ours might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 5. Paul was confident that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul knew that the power of the gospel is the power of the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul was fully confident that by the simple preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, that is to say, people of, of all humanity, every ethnic identity, every nation, the Holy Spirit would be brought to faith in Christ and receive salvation. Even though the cross was naturally a stumbling block and folly. Paul knew and trusted that to those who were called to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, that is, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, Christ crucified was the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, what about today? What about the message of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is our situation really all that different from that of first century Corinth? What about, what about us Americans today? Well, what do we demand? What do we seek? And, I'm, and I'm, yes, I'm speaking generally. I'm, I'm, it's a broad brush. 
I'm speaking generally, referring to America and more secular, but, but please don't miss the point that the secularism which surrounds the Christian church has, in fact, quite effectively invaded and infiltrated and infected. So what do we demand? What do we seek? Now, we don't demand too much, do we? We just demand to have our own way. We just have demand to have things the way we like them. And with regard to religion or spirituality, a relationship with God, we just, you know, we just want a religion that works for us. No, just fits in with and, and, and supports our lifestyle and meets our personal needs and, and helps us and encourages us as we pursue our personal goals and our own American dream. You know, it's, it's like this, Miles. One more piece of the puzzle that completes, just one more piece of the puzzle that completes the picture of the life that I want to live. Everything goes better with God. As though, as though God were merely an optional accessory to your life. Is God just an optional accessory to your life? An add on? A finishing touch to your otherwise? self-sufficient, and self-directed life. So our American culture today demands a God who, who understands me exactly as I do and understands all exactly as I do and forgives all and accepts all on my terms and who agrees with me in any decision or choice I make. We get along just fine. All we demand is a Lord who will let us we want to a Savior who will simply let us have our own way. A God who loves us so much that He requires nothing of us. And would never, ever dare to contradict us. The unbelieving Jews of the first century demanded signs, proofs of power. The Greeks sought wisdom in the 21st century. All we want is to have it our way. A God we make in our own image and likeness. Now in this kind of culture there's not much of a natural market for the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because to believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified is to believe some things that just don't in mythology. First of all the cross reveals that we really do need to be saved. Saved from the wrath of God, that we need to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God whose wrath we have provoked by our sins against Him. The message of the cross tells me that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, suffered divine wrath on my behalf in my stead because of my sins. My sins. And that means that I must not be nearly as good and wonderful as I think I am. It must mean that I'm really not okay just the way I am. Otherwise, why would Christ have needed to die for me? It must mean that some part of my being and that I desperately need a Savior. 
But you know, I'm just not real comfortable with that. You know how he's the wrath of God, really? I mean, who, who besides, let's say, Osama bin Laden or a child predator, who really needs to worry about hell? And furthermore, the general culture today presumes that we have the right. That this is just in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. We have the right, we suppose, to choose our own way to God. We have the right to demand that God accept our way of salvation to save us. If if we acknowledge that we need to be saved in the first place. But after all, we say, you know, it's a free country. I can believe whatever I want to believe. We all choose our own path to God. We're all unique individuals, spiritual, individual. We have to have individual liberty to live up to our full potential, to be all that God wants us to be. And so what God really wants is for me to be me. I've got to be me. I've got to be free. And all that matters is that we're sincere, true to our hearts, to each his own. Who's to say? That's the creed of popular American spirituality today. We save ourselves by being ourselves, and it is nothing less than the sad and tragic idolatry of the self, and it will land you in hell forever. But the cross of Christ stands in stark contradiction to that self-deluded idolatry. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is not a matter of sinners finding God however we want to, but of God finding and saving sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. For it is Jesus who has done what no other man would do or could do for you, suffer the righteous wrath of God to satisfy the perfect justice of God that we might not perish but have everlasting life. No one else has ever done that for you. No one else would ever do that for you. No one else could ever do that for you. And that is the reason that, as the Apostle Peter proclaimed, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But you see, here we go. That message is regarded as an offense. It is an offensive stumbling block or foolishness today because it declares that in and that I cannot save myself. The cross tells me that no matter how hard I try, no matter how moral I am, no matter how much good I think I do or intend to do, no matter how aspire to be, no matter how many self-help seminars I attend, how many causes I support, no matter how much health food I eat or exercise I get, I cannot save myself. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified tells me not to look to myself for for my salvation, but to someone else, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Look to Christ and be justified before God the Father. Look to Christ and be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Look to Christ and be glorified together with Him forever. But the salvation found in Christ is full, complete, perfect, and eternal. This is the good news that the infinite, eternal, holy, righteous, 
creator of heaven and earth, the lawgiver, has come into the world as a true man of flesh and blood, taking upon himself a human nature without sin, uniting himself to us as one of us, for us, for you. He lived a perfectly righteous life in obedience to his Father, that he might then offer up on your behalf his sinless life as the perfect, once for all, all-sufficient, atoning sacrifice for sin, suffering the wrath of God in your stead so that the justice of God against sin might be satisfied and the mercy of God towards sinners might be free to leave and receive him by faith. There's no other religion. In the world, there's no other philosophy, there is no other spirituality in which the holiness of God and the love of God, unity. In which the strict justice of God and the free mercy of God are in perfect harmony. But in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we see the holiness of God and the love of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God all revealed simultaneously in an amazing harmony and beautiful unity, a divine intersection. A divine intersection of God's holiness and God's love. A divine intersection of God's justice and God's mercy. A divine intersection. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. He, Christ crucified, the condemned sin-bearer, the condemned wrath-bearer, the condemned justice-satisfier. Jesus Christ crucified is freely offered to you. Forgiveness of your sins, the reconciliation with Almighty God, and for your assurance of eternal life in the everlasting kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. This is the gospel of your salvation. Believe it. Rest upon it. Rest your soul on it. Live your life according to it. There is no other gospel in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, this, I hope, has been a clear presentation of the gospel on this occasion on which we are dedicating this sanctuary to the glory of God. So mark it down and remember it. And tell it to your children and your children's children, so that they will tell it to their children, so that a generation yet unborn will know that the foundation of this congregation is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Mark it down and remember it. Tell it to the next generation, so that future elders and deacons and the future congregation in general stands in this sanctuary for the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh yes, we live in changing times, do we ever. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does not change because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you, the elders, the deacons, the congregation in general, your children, your children's children, you are called to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, to be proclaimed from this pulpit for generations to come. May it never be that this pulpit is word of God for His own profit, tickles your ears with the latest trends in contemporary theology or pop psychology or packages up the gospel as though it were a worldly commodity it to the world as though it were a product to be sold. May it never be. 
for generations to come, may this pulpit be filled only by know-nothing preachers. That is preachers who have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May this pulpit be dedicated to the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yes, yes, still a stumbling block in this world. Yes, yes, still foolishness to this world. And yes, yes, still the wisdom of God and the power of all who believe. To God be the glory. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm the faith of the throughout history and throughout the world as we say together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.